this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindu's in focus podcast quiet quitting has recently captured the imagination of employers and employees alike is it a new concept or is it a new name for something that is as old as the industry itself quiet quitters are described as those who continue to be employed in a company but just do their job and no more they are not seen as going above and beyond some experts argue that that is all right others say the level of engagement is to be seen distinctly from working only the average 40 hours a week and that quiet quitters could actually be contributing by working only 8 to 9 hours a day today we have with us mr bornik maitra managing partner for the india and south asia region at arthur d little which is said to be the oldest management consulting company to share his views with us on the topic mr maitra thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us today really appreciate your being with us cool thanks for this a pleasure to be here so uh, before we get into the details of this concept quiet quitting if we look at it at a 30000 foot view from your experience have you come across this uh, where we define quiet quitting as those who just come in do their work they committed but they don't they're not seen as going above and beyond is that something that you've seen across your career or is, is this a new concept no i don't think this is a new concept at all right in fact not every person who comes to a workplace needs to strive to over deliver on expectations uh, in fact across to most companies right uh, it is perfectly okay 50 60 70% of the population is actually meeting expectations and doing what is expected from them uh, so again uh, even though i have uh, lived most of my life in very high performance cultures right where often there is an expectation uh, in the job description itself to go above and beyond uh, but even there right if you are at any point of time meeting expectations right which is what is needed at your level i think uh, that is often uh, not an outlier and you don't stick out i think the thing to note right and this is where i think the quiet quitting uh, syndrome is is interesting right I, i would disaggregate output versus input right and often the debate on quiet quick quitting is are you working 8 hours a day or 10 hours a day i think in most companies i have seen worked at or even advised uh, as advisor right as long as your outputs are meeting expectations right inputs don't really matter right and whether it's 8 hours or 10 hours uh, i think there's an expectation that you meet the outputs and if you're meeting the output requirement Uh, i don't think the employers necessarily look down upon it excellent so you actually refer to this 50 60 70% it's interesting you measured uh, or mentioned that percentage because uh, the bell curve based on which you know most companies in the world till g took off what it itself pioneered in 2015 they said we'd stop using this if you look at the bell curve the 70% or what people call refer to as a solid citizen or the backbone of the company are um, you know they are seen as average performers and then you have the outliers on either side the great performers and those who lag behind so there was a distinction there were two opinions that i faced here when i was you know speaking to people one is that quiet quitters are not the same as the solid citizen or backbone of the company because the solid citizens are guys who or people um, you know men and women who aspire to be better than they are so there is a certain engagement a level of engagement that's higher than a quiet quitter but as a quiet quitter is like you know only so far and no farther and the other opinion of course is it's the same uh, it's just a uh, you know semantic difference how would you uh, look upon this yeah so so listen the uh, quiet quitter term itself is a very fancy term right i actually spent some time looking at the gallup survey 
And if you look at the data from 2000 to 2022, the proportion of this middle, right? And, and by the way, the Gallup survey actually profiles people who are actively engaged, right? Uh, which is in any year between 18 to 20%. So it's around the 20% mark. mark. And there are people who are actively disengaged, right? Who are the, the vocal quitters, right? They call it, right? Which is always around 25 to 30%. It's the middle population, right? Which actually it's hard to classify is what they're calling quiet quitters. Now, I think my point of view would be actually somewhere in between the two extreme opinions you heard. I think the quiet quitter population is not a homogeneous population, but there would be, I would say, sub-segments of that population. I think in that sub-segment, there would be a classic solid citizen, someone who is uh, reasonably happy with the work they're doing. They are engaged with the work they're doing. They want to get better every year. They're looking at decent career prospects. They're looking for career progression. Uh, and they are willing to do what is expected of them, probably not willing to do what is not expected of them. So there would be a, a, a proportion of the, of the 50% which the Gallup survey found who would fall fall into this, which would be the solid citizens who I believe, right, as, a, as an employer myself and as an advisor, that if you could motivate them or if you could create opportunities that are exciting, they can easily move from the solid citizen to even a bucket which is a proactive bucket. So that's one part of the population. Then there is a second part of the population which is on the other end of the spectrum, which is closer to the vocal disengaged population who whatever you do to them will remain uh, uh, what I would call the coasters. Right? They will do exactly the optimal amount needed to meet expectations, to meet performance standards and will never go beyond. So I think, as I said, right? So I would say the quiet quitter population has some of these solid citizens, which are the striving citizens, and it may have some of these coasters right, who are actually... Uh, just doing enough to stay. Now, in my opinion, these coasters often also leave the company pretty quickly, right? Because uh, if you are in a company and you're actually coasting, right, I think uh, reasonably well-performing companies with good performance management systems can spot these people very quickly, right? And and these are the people who find it a little difficult to get promoted. Uh, they may not get the exciting leadership opportunities. So again, uh, for you, yes, if there is a solid citizen, Who's not, who doesn't need to put 16, 18 hours a day, but is getting the outputs needed in, in an 8, 10-hour workday and who aspires for career progression. I think that is an opportunity for employers to engage them and get them more motivated. But I think in the same population, you will find these coasters, right, who for whatever reasons may be, right, will never get there, right? And that's the population which typically, if they are fine with a job which is reasonably stagnant, a career which is not advancing, which I don't think psychologically anyone would, would want to be in that position, uh, are the people who are actually the former, right, who are just doing the bare minimum. Now, in my experience of this 50%, I would like to believe, right, that most of the population is more solid citizen than the coasters. Okay. It's an interesting point that you came up with. Actually, you, you uh, preempted one of my later questions saying, you know, how long will a quiet quitter last? Because, you know, eventually will there be disengagement? And I see that that's what you're saying. But the nature of stepping away from that point, the nature of work also determines, you know, the level of um, engagement. But like if you're in sales, you have to be outgoing extrovert. You know, you know, how many calls did you make? Only a certain percentage converts into actual conversations and a smaller percentage converts into, you know, uh, conversions, you know, from prospects into clients. And then you have somebody working very well, very committed in, in their job. Uh, to accounts uh, receivables, for instance. It's, you know, relatively, if you look at sales and compare it with sales, it's a less glamorous job. And there's only so much you can do in terms of bringing more than just yourself to work. 
but they're very very uh, valuable to the company as valuable as sales i'll say so does the nature of job also determine how engaged you are with your company and that and these are people who could well spend 20 years 30 years in an organization so would you have a view on that yeah so i think uh, the nature of job actually determines whether going above and beyond is necessarily required or not uh, so i completely agree with that point of view right if you are in a leadership position uh, if you are in a revenue generating position if you are in a client facing position i think uh, Every year, the bar will keep shifting. Your clients will demand more of you. Uh, the markets or the shareholders will demand better performance. So by definition, the expectation will go up every year reasonably steeply. Right? And you have to uh, actually improve performance every year to even keep pace with the growing expectations. So there are a set of jobs which actually inherently or these profiles which inherently look like this. But this, in my opinion, is only 20-30% of the composition of any company workforce. I think... The other 70-80% is filled with people or filled with profiles where you have to have show consistency. You have to ensure that there are no errors, no slippages. And there, by the way, the volume or quantum of work, right, or whether you go over and beyond the scope is rarely going to determine uh, what will be success for your role. And, and again, you, you alluded to some of these roles, right? Finance roles are classic roles like that. Administrative roles are again like that. Even if you go into a factory and a manufacturing environment, right, uh, the role of a of an operations supervisor and operations personnel is very similar, right? I think even there, right? Uh, even if you have some uh, stretch goals, they are often of the order of magnitude of one or two percent or three four percent. Unlike in sales or other areas where you can have far more stretch goals, so I think the the requirement of going above and beyond actually is only restricted to few job profiles and not to every job profile. And I, and I believe in a healthy organization, the uh, going above or beyond expectation should be limited to 20-30% of the roles and not 70% of the roles, right? So that's point number one. Point number two, where I disagree slightly uh, with your assessment, and this is from an employer point of view, I would uh, disaggregate uh, engagement with going above and beyond. Right? I really believe that for you to be satisfied uh, personally with your job, right, there has to be some level of engagement. And on the engage-disengage scale, that has to be closer to the engage scale versus the disengage scale, Right. So while you may uh, still not not work like 12 hours a day when you can get your job done in eight, if you have to process uh, payroll at month end, right, ensure that you only process payroll and do nothing. But that should not stop you from being engaged with the company and contributing to the company and bringing your own ideas to the company. So where I believe for, for an employer, they should be more worried about, right, is not about whether people are going above or beyond, but whether fundamentally people are interested excited happy in the workplace they are working in and that and i think engagement is an important metric on that so again i agree with the above and beyond point you don't need everyone to do it but again as an employer i would be a bit uh, dissatisfied myself right if more than 50 percent of the employees believe that they're actually more disengaged than engaged with the organization okay that distinction was insightful but if we look at the psychology of work you know, you talked about growth, which is important, which means that even to remain in the same place, it's like a treadmill, uh, you know, you run so that you can at least remain in the same place, if not uh, progress forward. And yeah, the company has to grow, revenues have to grow, profits have to grow so that, you know, if I look at it only from an employee's point of view, then, you know, my uh, salary increments and promotions come in, in due course. Uh, so that is an expectation from the employee's side also. But um, if 
you know, if I have to take the example of cricket, if Virat Kohli hits a 200 in one test match, that often becomes the base for which the next year's targets are uh, formulated, especially, if, you know, if I take a profile like sales. So, you know, even if Virat Kohli hits 120 in the next match, uh, it's not good enough for uh, viewers. So, but that is not fair to him. So, in terms of goal setting and making sure that people are going above and beyond, but not to the detriment of their, uh, you know, um, mental health or you know, work-life balance. Uh, have you been? Have you have you seen anything that goes to the extremes? And then, as advisor, you've had to bring the employer back to a certain middle. Yeah. So, I think uh, you hit an important point, and this, I think, is a far more uh, prescient and important issue. Uh, than fancy words like quiet quitting. And, and and goal setting is important. When we advise clients, and even in my companies, we tend to ask employers and even ourselves to look at uh, people's uh, roles and profiles, not in quarters or years, but more as a set of years in which they are growing from level A to level B. So I think it's like a journey over four or five years. I think we should all be sensible and mature to understand that in this environment, even for the highest performing person, he will have a bad year or two or he will have a bad quarter or two, right? More so in an environment where you have a crisis coming every two years or three years. So I think performance management systems should be sensible and mature to, uh, to accommodate that, which is why I think across a lot of places, people are revisiting the, the frequency with which they do performance management. I think a lot of companies don't want to do semi-annual reviews, want to do annual reviews, uh, a lot of places, uh, at, at least in senior advisory firms, often for senior leaders, right, the reviews are not even annual. Right? They, are, they happen once in two years, right? Uh, so I think uh, two things, right? One is you have to be careful as to the frequency at which you're doing the review because uh, things are far more volatile than ever before. And secondly, at the end of the day, while everyone is outcome-oriented, right, if the outcomes don't happen, I think organizations and supervisors and managers should have the maturity to understand and disaggregate the so-called underperformance into something within the control of the employee versus something which is not, right? And to be fair, not every salesperson can outperform their targets two times every year, right? So I think, uh, which is where I think this entire notion of comparing uh, everyone across an absolute standard, uh, where I think the old G philosophy of a stack rank or, or, or a bell curve probably may be fairer because just because... There should be no penalty of overperformance, right? Just because you've managed to sell 10 versus everyone else in your cohort who sold 5 doesn't mean next year you are expected to sell 10 and if you do 8, whereas everyone else around you is doing 5, right? You are tagged as an underperformer. So again, most companies I work with have actually realized this and built some of this nuance into the performance management system. And some companies are still struggling to do it. So I think uh, here, it, I think it's solely upon the maturity of the company, the nuancing of the sophistication of the performance management system where it can understand that see roles where there is a possibility of 2x 5x performance also comes with significant variability and volatility i think people have to have the maturity to understand that and sales is a classic example right you cannot expect a salesperson to be beating targets every single quarter right even if you look at cxos and ceos right it's highly unlikely that you have a company which is metronomically growing seven eight percent ten twelve percent every year I think every year there will be ups and downs. Sometimes you'll miss your revenue gui uh, guidance. Sometimes you'll hit your revenue guidance or miss your profit guidance. So there's enough volatility, which, by the way, I think markets and even public and private investors are often far more forgiving than performance managers and bosses, right? 
Uh, so again, I think companies just have to have the maturity to deal with this. And, I, and they should not expect just because you've done well in a year or a quarter, that becomes a new norm for you to overachieve every single time. Got it. Um, it's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, quiet quitters who are actually, you know, one portion of that population is actually engaged with the company and it's possible for employers to, uh, you know, check out what motivates them and actually push them to high performers. That actually went against my notion and I'm open to correction that quiet quitters can, you know, absolutely and obviously not be part of the top management because they're, you know, expected to go above and beyond. Otherwise, it's difficult for the company to progress, move forward. Uh, would you have a view on that? You know, can can a top three or five people in a hundred or five hundred person company actually be quite quitters while you know contributing to the company? I think uh, again, I read a lot of uh, social media posts where they point to a person. Listen, this person worked nine to five and then became a CEO, right? Unfortunately, the sample size I've been exposed to, I've never run into a C-suite person or a founder or a CEO who's anything but a super engaged, super charged, going 10 times above the expectation kind of a personality. So again, I think just the sample size and the data may suggest that there are that there are more exceptions here, right? But, but it's an exception to the norm uh, to have someone who is uh, just doing exactly what is expected and then rises to the top of the company, right? So again, uh, that I have seen rarely happen, right? But that said, right? I think we have to all acknowledge that we are all human beings and we also have phases in our lives, right? And the phases may be to do with external circumstances. It may be to do with the personal health and well-being of the person, right? So someone who's a quiet quitter today does not need to be a quiet quitter all through their lives, right? I have never run into someone who's always been... See, and again, I read some of the literature on quiet quitting, right? And there are people who are saying, so what? Uh, uh, You don't want to be a C-sweeter, right? I don't see, and it's against human nature for someone to say, listen, I don't want to be uh, successful and be valued by my peers all of my life. I think people have different priorities at different times. Uh, and sometimes the priorities shift away from work. Sometimes they shift away towards work. So I think organizations have to demonstrate the flexibility and, and I would say the openness to see what kind of models work with people to engage them and how they can actually motivate people. And, and again, I have a very simple uh, I would say mantra, which I think uh, I try to embody in my work, right, is that it is hard to inspire your co-workers and your juniors and peers if you're not inspired yourself, right? So I, I often find uh, it very difficult to uh, understand or even empathize with managers who are always complaining that my people are not motivated enough to work, right, when they seem to be the source of the problem themselves, right? Uh, so again, I would, uh, coming back to your point, right, again, believe that every single person who may be in the quiet quitter bracket may have the potential to be a senior leader. I think organizations need to do more to get that potential out of them. And people are not static human beings through their life cycle. I think priorities change. Today, you may be a quiet quitter. Tomorrow, in the right environment, right job, you may actually become a rock star. Or tomorrow, if the same person right, decides to do a startup, I would find it very hard to believe that he will continue to do uh, a, a only what is needed, he believes, versus going above and beyond. So human beings change. I think for organizations, I think they should focus on getting the best out of everyone in their organization, which does not mean inputs. It means outputs, right? And find the right way to motivate, compensate, inspire them to get more out of themselves. Okay. So that answered my next question also. I was about to ask you your view on Alibaba's Jack Ma, who said uh, 996, that's his formula, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. But like you say, it 
need not apply to uh, X, Y, or Z this year, but maybe you know two years down the line, three years down the line, if they so choose to. No, but again, I disagree with nine nine six. So first of all, I'll tell you for most of my career, right? I said, listen, you make me work uh, midnight to midnight from Monday to Friday, but the weekends belong to me, right? Uh, and I think for fourteen, fifteen of my careers, I was privileged to work with uh, employers and clients who respected that, right? Now, by the way, as I've grown a little bit older, right, I don't mind putting in a few hours of uh, work on the weekend, right, as long as I don't I get eight hours of sleep at night, right? So, again, priorities change. Again, I don't think there's a 996 formula, right? And people who advocate 996, I think that's a really unhealthy formula for physical, mental uh, well-being of the individual and also of the organization. There should not be an organization where you're perpetually in a 100-hour uh, treadmill all the time for every single employee. And this also brings to this entire thing which got very popular in the gaming and the software industry called this entire crunch mindset right uh, when you're publishing a game right particularly before the game goes live right, there's a crunch right because the game has to be rid of all bugs and all of that now all human beings are programmed to do this a few times a year but if that becomes a perpetual crunch uh, culture right that is in my opinion very unhealthy so but startups are guilty of the hustle or the crunch culture right because you know their resources are limited and they have certain ambitions and now you know unicorn aspirations that kick in whether the founder wants it or not his investors do so are we promoting a certain unhealthy culture unhealthy both in terms of physical and mental health or that's the nature of the beast i mean if you choose to go on that treadmill you have to run so you don't have a choice no see listen i would say primarily it's nature of the beast right See, remember, you are trying to disrupt something and build something new. And the investors who are investing in you are expecting 50, 100x returns, right? In a very short time frame. Versus if you work in a publicly listed company, the investors are fine with 8, 10, 12% annualized return, right? So I think just the profile of what you're doing just makes it very different. So, And by the way, most uh, startups have the hustle culture. I think it's... Uh, they also have this culture of faking it till you make it. And that often means that you have to do a lot of activity. Now, but there again, I think there is a balance to be had, right? I don't, I don't believe, right? As, as I said, right? That if every single person in the company is working 100 hours a week, right? Then I don't think there's any, then everyone is burning out. So again, in the interest and, and a lot of the work I often do with founders is often tell them, listen, uh, as a founder, what are you really good at? And if you look at your 100 hour work week, right? Are you spending all of the 100 hours in things where actually you would create value for the company or are you spending 50, 60 hours on doing things which can either be delegated to someone or where you do not need to be involved. So again, I think one of the things I have seen at least working in startups, right, uh, is that I believe every single startup can be optimized in terms of what they undertake and what they don't, right? And the level of wasteful activity in a startup is probably 10, 15, 20% more or 30% more than a normal company just because they're trying to discover things and find out things, right? So again, while the nature of the beast is that it's a tougher place to work because remember, all startup employees are coming because of stock options, right? And that stock options also make sense if the investors get 50x return. But is everyone working a 100-hour week or an 80-hour week all the time healthy? I don't really believe so. I think you should really look at yourself to see is there any job which really requires that kind of effort every single day of the year for years on end, I would again have a little bit of a healthy skepticism of that assertion. Understood. Just to close out this conversation, uh, Mr. Maitra, if you had to ask or have your employers whom you advise, have them ask three or five simple questions to the average employee to understand at which level he or she is engaged, would you have a certain list? 
no so listen uh, again it's a fairly small list right uh, where uh, and again some of them are survey type questions and some of them uh, are more deeper questions i think i fundamentally and and by the way we are doing this at our company or we'll be doing a, a similar kind of an engagement kind survey soon and we really ask people as to whether uh, they are really proud and excited about working at the place they are working right uh, what really drives excitement at their workplace right uh, what could their employers do more of to get them more excited about waking up in the morning and showing up at work are there things which drain them of their energy at the workplace right which actually makes them disengaged and are there genuine fixes to that right having an honest dialogue around that i'm not saying that you have to con- conduct an engagement survey right again forget about clients in my own company right i have now built a management consulting firm from literally one employee to 70 employees in the last 2 years right i keep asking every single of my employees that listen do what do you like about working in this company right what are things we can do better to ensure that you feel more empowered uh, and more successful right are there some things which irritate you right or or come in the way of you being more excited at working and as long as employers have a have a periodic engagement with their employees in asking the right questions and then taking action uh, against that i think uh, that's the way to go the other interesting notion which i think uh, i saw companies like google pioneer which i thought was very interesting is this entire notion of uh, giving some time or even giving some weightage in the uh, assessment system for personal projects employees were driving right and uh, that gave them a little bit of freedom to try something on their own it by the way is also a, a solution to the entire moonlighting crisis which you have, must have been hearing about in the it industry right so if you give people space enough right which says that listen i'm going to incentivize you or measure you on one passion project you're undertaking on behalf of the company right and it can be anything you choose right and for that you should behave as if you're the owner of the company or the shareholder of the company and then drive that and bring that back to the top management for consideration right i think there are tricks like that i wouldn't call them tricks i think they are valuable tools right uh, which i think employers can do more of right to just ensure that they are engaging the workforce right but again i'm not a big believer that you run big surveys and all of that and then do nothing about it right it's actually the employers responsibility to drive engagement right and if they believe their workforce is not engaged enough right how do you engage them is it about creating more exciting opportunities for them for example i will tell you and this is from a personal experience right in consulting firms right and in multinational firms one of the biggest excitement and source of uh, i would say commitment to the firm is uh, global mobility and why do people find it exciting it's not because of uh, that you're going to a fancy place to work but it's a sense of adventure it's a sense of growth because you you learn far more in unfamiliar environments than familiar environments and then the company says listen it doesn't matter that if I, if you put in an unfamiliar setting and you fail right it's fine right we are happy with you to to grow along with that right so again this is all about career progression giving people opportunities creating enough diversity of work create create rotations create opportunities right which if most companies do well i think this so called middle population of quiet quitters will more represent the solid citizens than the coasters okay it's interesting your point on periodic reviews actually triggered a couple of more sub questions so please bear with me on these one is uh, how periodic should periodic be um, because some people say that one year is too long for people to wait to understand what their bosses think the other is like you cannot have continuous because then it will become a chore for the manager he'll just send the email copy pasted for everybody in his team that's it's one question that i had and second is what is the optimum team size i mean if i look at a large you know a company the it services is easy to come across such companies 
100,000, 200,000. For a manager, line manager, five people is very, very easy to manage. 200 is uh, ridiculous. You know, probably 20 is optimum. I don't know. But if you were to advise companies, what is optimum for a manager to be able to manage, both in terms of continuous requests uh, for personal time off and so on and so forth, and reviews as such to understand how each team member is, how much he or she is engaged. So let me answer the second question because that's straightforward. I think there's enough management literature and science and research which suggests that a span of anywhere between 7 to 10, maybe 12 at the outer limit, but but around 5 at one end and maybe 12 at the other end, but closer to a 7 to 8 number is an optimum and healthy and a span for any manager to have in terms of direct reports, right? Now, you can be leading a 200-member team, right, where there are 200 people who are on paper working for you, but then in terms of span, right, you should be measuring and being accountable for only seven, eight, ten people, no more. Even having two less people is not, not healthier for a manager. So I think that is a fairly straightforward. Having a manager who has 20, 25 direct reports is very unhealthy, right? Uh, because it creates fragmentation, it creates friction. Hell, I don't know, uh, how do you remember 25 people's names and what they are doing every day at the same time? So again, I think that is fairly established management literature. I think seven to 10 is a nice healthy metric to, to aspire towards. Now, the first question is interesting, Right. So I think let me just explain a little bit of a philosophy I have. I think performance assessment is different from feedback. I think feedback should be continuous, ongoing, and feedback should be both positive reinforcement and also developmental, right? And there should nothing stopping a manager to give feedback to his direct reports on a daily or even on an event basis, right? You go to a pitch meeting with a client and then at the end of it, you pull aside your direct report and say, hey, listen. I think you did a great job. Here are three things you did well, and here are two or three things I would do differently next time, right? And that, I think, is is the responsibility of every single manager to ensure that there is a constant feedback loop, which are, which is both reinforcement but developmental. And there, by the way, I have a little bit of a contrary opinion to most uh, managers that I believe in feedback, you should celebrate more the strengths of the individual than the weaknesses uh, because we perform far better if we sharpen our strengths, Right. I think you have to get your weaknesses up to an acceptable level, but you don't need to polish it every single day, right? It's like polishing a diamond, right? Would you polish a rock of coal or, or a block of diamond, right? Which will shine brighter. But again, I think it is the manager's responsibility to ensure that feedback is given on a continuous basis, event-based basis, and you don't wait for an appraisal cycle to give a feedback. Which then brings us to the point of view of what's the philosophy of appraisal and why are you doing appraisal, Right. Now, the philosophy of appraisal is from just from a pure compensation basis, from a career progression basis, I think it should be completely driven by what the career stages and, and grades are. For example, in, in a services organization, if your employees are expecting a promotion and their career grades are promotion every one or two years, then a semi-annual cycle may actually be suitable right? because uh, you have to get two, three performance data points in before you decide whether the person moves to the next level or not. If you get into much more senior levels where the performance expectation is not a quarterly expectation and even the, the promotion cycles are not every one or two years, but three, four, five years, I think a once a year kind of a philosophy actually makes a lot of sense because it gives the individual enough time to showcase performance, to show that he's working on areas of improvement and he's making changes you're asking them to make, right? In some extreme situations, as I've said, right, I've seen places where people often do once in two year evaluations, right? Where they say, listen, a year may not be enough to judge the impact of the person. But again, as I would say that I think the evaluation process and the appraisal process should be linked to career paths and career trajectory. Feedback should be continuous and is a responsibility of managers. And I, and I believe, by the way, an important metric 
to assess managers is how they develop people and create future leaders, right? And if you put 20% of that on scorecards on most managers and tell them that the way to do it is not wait for an appraisal cycle, but to maintain a continuous evaluate, uh, feedback, that would be more helpful. In fact, a lot of good companies I have worked in and all the companies I have worked in have this entire notion of upward feedback. And a certain percentage of your evaluation is actually tied to upward feedback, right? Uh, that often is a very good tool to ensure that your managers are also in, uh, building enough muscle and spending enough time on people development. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Maitra. Your uh, views came across crisp and lucid. Really appreciate it. Uh, is there anything, any other piece of ground you think we should cover on this? Uh, I've exhausted my list of questions. I think it's uh, a quite an interesting topic. I, I think the only, I don't think we need to cover any ground. I would not be an alarmist and look at the 50%, 60% number and say, listen, there's a big problem with people. I think in general, as I said, if I look at the Gallup survey itself, the number has always been around 50% over 20, 25 years, which is a big uh, sample size to look at. I think uh, the onus is on employers to engage their people more effectively and uh, engage, and it's not writing of employees. I believe every single employee who works in a company has the ability to perform well beyond potential. And if someone is holding themselves back, I think the onus is on the employer to do something different to get the full out of their maximum out of their employees. There's not maximum input, but maximum output and maximum engagement. Excellent. Thank you so much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.